good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking trusting a man who walks quietly. We're talking match on action. And we're talking that silly bitch, she fainted in the wrong scene. And I'm Joe. I'm so glad you said that. And we're talking, oh my god, and I'm Trace, and we are not talking Psycho again this year. (laughs) This is true. We did debate it. Like, we gave it some very serious thought, and then you said, how about instead of doing Psycho, which is the obvious choice, we do Peeping Tom, which is the underseen choice, which is ironic, considering we just finished that. Well, you know, we, we went through the, the 2010s in our underseen and underrated. So I think it really needs to, we need to go back to the 60s. Because granted, I mean, and yes, everyone, we were discussing Peeping Tom in this episode today, which if you haven't seen it, um, big recommend. Please mm-hmm. go see it. Absolutely. But no, I mean, like, you know, a lot of people, I think, who are cinephiles know about this film and have seen this film. But I also think there's a good subset of people who only know about this film because of the trivia question Kirby Reed receives in Scream 4. Mm-hmm. I think you're giving Scream 4 quite a lot of credit. I think a lot of people just know about this in connection to Psycho. It's like, which one of two controversial films came out in 1960? Well, you didn't get two replies from your tweet talking about this film where they were like, oh, yeah, I heard about this on on Scream 4 and I've been meaning to watch it. (laughs) Yeah, let me guess. Were they gay and born in a certain decade? (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, everyone, Peeping Tom. Welcome to Peeping Tom. This is going to be fun. Um, First time watch for you, Joe, isn't it? It was indeed, yeah. I definitely knew a lot about this film. I knew about its rocky reception. I knew about the method of dispatching women. But yeah, when I first started this, I thought, oh, okay, I have only seen stills. I've seen clips. I know Mm -hmm. the premise. This is a very different film when you watch the whole thing because... It is so fucking well made. Yeah. I was shocked. Like, this movie is a legitimate gem, and there's a good reason it's a classic. But it's also a film, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know every, like, film about serial killers that was made pre-1960, but it also deals with subject matter that feels very ahead of its time, and it deals with it in a way that I feel like is very ahead of its time. And we will make psycho comparisons today because, I mean, there's a lot of DNA shared here. Mm Mm-hmm. But this is a film that, re- I mean, your protagonist is your antagonist. And that's not really how Psycho goes about it, because we follow the women around that film a lot. And so I just was watching this, and I was like, I am shocked that this is how, like, this film decided to go about it. But I'm also very impressed, and I respect it so much. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to quibble with your word choice. I'm going to say yeah. that our protagonist is our villain. He is not the antagonist. Mm, that's fair. But... I agree with you in that it does feel unorthodox, right? Like, we're not used to seeing this. We're used to seeing this from somebody else's perspective, and then the villain comes in. But I think this would be such a different movie if this guy wasn't 
Like if we were following Helen instead of instead of Mark. Yeah, but also like Mark is sympathetic. There there is trauma in his backstory. Mm-hmm. There is you know shyness there's otherness i'm gonna make a pitch i think you're gonna join me that we read mark as a queer figure Mm -hmm. and i think it could be very different if he had just been a guy who's salivating at the thought of you know getting women half naked and murdering them yes he is killing women but he is i don't know he's relatable well he is i think what makes it better and also creepier is that he is a wear that what he is doing is wrong. He is... Right. Which, oh gosh, I should have done more research into this, but I feel like that's sociopathy where you know what you're doing is wrong, whereas psychopathy, like, you can't tell the difference between right and wrong. Maybe I'm wrong with those definitions, but <laughs> I can only imagine being an audience member in the 60s and watching this movie and being like, I feel like this movie is trying to make me empathize with mm-hmm. this serial killer who is... Yes. And great, he is a sick, sick man. But yeah, there's a tenderness with which this film deals with him that I just, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's very touching. It's touching, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yeah, and then, of course, the movie also makes us feel uncomfortable as audience members because so often we are put in the first-person perspective point of view of actually witnessing these murders and feeling complicit in them, which is, you know, one of the main reasons why this film was not beloved by critics at the time. Oh, God. Yeah, no, we will we will get into this. But why don't we go into what, how it was made? And then honestly, yeah, the reception of this, I have a boatload of things mm-hmm. <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> so, okay. Prior to writing the screenplay for Peeping Tom, Leo Marx, a polymath, had worked as a cryptographer during World War II. And he stated he was inspired to write a horror story and to become a codebreaker after reading The Gold Bug by Edgar Allan Poe. And okay. The gold bug is about, um, it follows a man who was bitten by a gold-colored bug, and his servant Jupiter fears that Legrand is going insane and goes to his friend, an unnamed narrator. But this man pulls the other two into an adventure after deciphering a secret message that will lead to buried treasure. So, oh, wow. Okay. There's a lot going on there. A lot going on there. <laughs> but, but but nevertheless, this, this, this story, uh, is uh, this book, is what prompted this guy to not only become a cryptographer in World War II for Britain, by the way, Mm -hmm. but um, also write the screenplay for Peeping Tom. Okay. He based portions of the film on his experience growing up as the son of Benjamin Marks, who owned the Marks & Co. bookstore in London. So elements of Peeping Tom are based on his observations of inner city residents who frequented his father's store, uh, Mm -hmm. to the extent that the sex worker Dora, who's murdered in the opening scene. Right. She was actually based on a real-life sex worker who was a regular patron of the Marks & Co. bookstore. (laughs) Oh, so flattering. I murdered you in my movie. (laughs) While writing the script, Marx believed that motivations behind Mark Lewis's murder to be entirely sexual. And I I debated bringing this in later, but I just feel like going in, we need to know that the writer's intent was yes. Like Mark Lewis was 100% using these these films he's making to uh, self-pleasure himself. Right, yeah. Uh, but he would state in retrospect that he felt the psychological compulsion of the character was less sexual than it was unconscious. So, you know. Hmm. Make of that what you will. The film was financed by Nat Cohen, the co-founder of Anglo Amalgamated Film Distributors, with other funds from the National Film Finance Corporation. And Cohen originally wanted a star to play the lead role in this film and suggested Dirk Bogard. Okay. 
But this is a time, again, I mean, we're still in the 60s, but it's like where, you know, the studios were like owning actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the British entertainment conglomerate Rank Organization had him under contract and refused to loan him out. I love that terminology. Loan him yeah. out. <laughs> uh, capitalism. I know. Uh, Lawrence Harvey was attached for a while, but pulled out during pre-production. And Powell ended up casting German-Austrian actor Karl Heinz or Karl Baum. Now, Bohm was a friend of Powell's and noted that their prior acquaintance helped him psychoanalyze and, quote-unquote, go into very, very special details of the character of Mark Lewis. Bohm saw Lewis as a sympathetic character whom he felt great pity for. And in a 2008 interview, he stated that he would identify with the character because he also stood for a long time in the shadow of his famous father, conductor Carl Bohm, and had a difficult relationship with him. He stated that he interpreted his character as being traumatized by growing up under the Nazi regime, which probably is something he could relate to personally since he was born in Germany and I think wound up living in Austria for most of his life. Wow. Okay. I mean, because he has an accent in this movie, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I find it interesting that in this British film, it's not really addressed much, Mm -hmm. especially, what, 15 years after the end of World War II? Yeah, and he does have an accent, so he is sort of noticeably othered in that capacity. And I couldn't help but wonder, you know, here is a a through and through British production that's casting its sociopathic serial killer lead with a German actor. And I was like, yeah, I can't believe that more people haven't done something with that in their readings because it does feel really significant to me. I don't know, maybe just something that they didn't think of because they were already friends. I mean, I I, I could see that being more the case if they weren't already friends. It was like, yeah, let's Mm -hmm. cast someone who's German to help other this character. But it's like, oh, hey, buddy, (laughs) let's get you in this movie. Absolutely. But as someone who didn't know about that relationship and just watched the film, I was like, huh. Okay, what's the commentary here? Mm -hmm. No, very, very interesting, too. I mean, I, I didn't even think about it until you had mentioned it. And that really is on me because I, I feel like I should <laughs> pick up on that more. <laughs> I'm not picking up everything on every watch. It's impossible. It's impossible. But anyway, so filming took place for six weeks beginning in October of 1959. And that's all I have for production because we are going right into release and reception, Joe. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. Let's okay. <laughs> dig in. Peeping Tom was first released in the United Kingdom, uh, premiering in London on April 7th, 1960. Now, Anglo-amalgamated films were typically released in the United States by the American International Pictures uh, through a deal between the two companies, but they were not interested in releasing Peeping Tom, apparently skeptical of its ability to satisfy audiences. So it never, at least in 1960, got a wide release. It wasn't released until a couple years later in 1962. Hmm... And and that was when Astor Pictures uh, picked it up, and they released it simultaneously to the markets for genre horror films, art films, and exploitation films, but it failed to find an audience and was one of the least successful releases by Astor. So again, this is the 1962 US release of the film. Right, okay. We're going to go back in a minute. But at this time, <laughs> the film received a B rating from the National Legion of Decency. Oh my god. Psycho got this same score as well. Hmm. Um, The National Legion of Decency, by the way, was a Catholic group founded in 1934 and was dedicated to identifying for Catholic audiences objectionable content in motion pictures. So members were asked to pledge to patronize only those motion pictures which did not offend decency and Christian morality. So for Keeping Tom, they signify morally objectionable in part content. You could either go A, B, or C, with A being morally unobjectionable, B being morally objectionable in part, and C being condemned. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is interesting. This sounds like an early precursor to the MPA. Well, it's like, what, what is that site that you can go to? It's like, um, I don't know, like mm. re- re- reviews for kids. It, it scores like sex, language, violence, whatever, on a scale of one to ten to tell you like mm-hmm. what is in each film. So you know if it's OK for your kid or not. Yeah, and it does have a heavy religious bent. Yes, it certainly does. So before we go back to uh, England, we actually did have this film censored for a bit. Uh, When Peeping Tom was released in Italy in 1960, the Committee for the Theatrical Review of the Italian Ministry of Cultural Heritage and Activities rated it as VM-16 not suitable for children. Of course, you know, they say, oh, they're shocking and several scenes not suitable for minors. But... In order for the film to be screened publicly, the committee imposed the removal of the following scenes. Two scenes that take place in the photographer's studio, uh, in particular the one in which Millie is shown alone, fully dressed and half undressed in front of the mirror because she is, quote unquote, indecent. Sure. (laughs) Two other scenes. Oh, go ahead. No, I I just think it's good and sad to see that we have been condemning women's bodies as something that is vulgar or like unbecoming for decades it's it's just kind of like right okay we've always been doing this to women good to know i mean it's kind of, it's kind of in the bones of this film right with this whole like the secret photography studio for his pinup mm-hmm. girls right like it's something sure. to be ashamed of oh yeah i mean sex bad <laughs> <laughs> the other one is uh i think it's also the scene with millie where she's literally topless right before he murders her right okay um, but yeah, the and the film was banned in Finland until 1981. So this is like wow, a video nasty of the 60s and 70s, basically. Okay, okay, okay. So let's get into this reception. Mm-hmm. Peeping Tom's depiction of violence and its lurid sexual content made it okay. I, I, not my words. <laughs> no, I know it, and we have to remember this is 1960. Like we are talking about 60 years ago. So. You know, we watch this movie now and we think, uh, okay, we're not exactly sure what you're seeing, but obviously mm-hmm. things were very different 60 years ago. Oh, 100%. I mean, even, th- I mean, spoiler alert, when he kills himself at the end and like it cuts and you see that splatter of blood on the wall, I was just kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, we went oh, there. We're doing like, this. Yeah. <laughs> that's graphic. Oh, I guess too. Yeah. We're like having a suicide close the film. Mm-hmm. But the critical backlash heaped on the film was a major factor in finishing director Michael Powell's career as a director in the United Kingdom. Now, he was a very respected film director and most well-known for directing the movie The Red Shoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that, by the way? I own it. I haven't seen it. Uh, I know that it has been championed a lot by Alex West from the Faculty of Horror. Mm -hmm. It's supposedly one of the most beautiful films ever made. And I feel like just thinking about how much I latched onto Vivian in this film, thinking about watching her in an entire film is very intriguing. Oh, I remember. Okay, so I saw Peeping Tom for the first time in college. It was definitely mm-hmm. a film school watch. And my teacher oh, was sure. like, we're not watching Psycho. We're watching Peeping Tom, the originator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're taking out to this individual, huh? Pretty much. Yes. Well, because I had heard of it, but I, I, I'd never seen it. And, I, you know, you go to film school and you're like, oh, I'm going to get to watch all the classics like Psycho. <laughs> Our <laughs> teacher was like, no, we're watching Peeping Tom. But um, <laughs> I remember, though, because she gets what? two scenes back to back before she's killed and i love her character so much a hundred percent i think all of the women in this movie are great even helen who could be argued is the most boring of all of them Mm -hmm. i'm just like the women in this film are kick-ass they're very well written yeah which is shocking because half of them are barely characters and yet there's something about the portrayal and yeah i would say the way that they're written it really makes them pop 
I, I agree. So credit to Mr. Marks and a credit to uh, the actresses portraying all these women. <laughs> mm-hmm. So supposedly after the film's premiere, nobody from the audience went to shake the hand of Michael, uh, of Michael Powell or the lead actor. Okay. British reviews tended toward the hyperbolic and negativity, an example being a review published in the Monthly Film Bulletin, which likened Powell to the Marquis de Sade. Um, <laughs> okay. If you don't know who that is, French nobleman, a revolutionary politician, philosopher, and um, wrote a lot um, from he his point of, of view. Smut. Yeah. Yeah. Libertine sexuality. That's a good way yeah. of putting it. <laughs> also, if you've never seen Quills, please seek it out. It's amazing. We have mentioned that before, too. Good. Uh, Derek Hill, reviewer of the Tribune, suggested that the only really satisfactory way to dispose of Peeping Tom would be to shovel it up and flush it swiftly down the nearest sewer. <laughs> Lynn Mosley, writing for Daily Express, said that the film was more nauseating and depressing than the leper colonies of East Pakistan, the back streets oh of my. Bombay, and oh. the gutters of Calcutta. Jesus, take down the racism a notch. Carol- oh, well, it's 1960. Um- <laughs> and Britain, yeah. Caroline Lejeune of The Observer wrote, It's a long time since a film disgusted me as much as Peeping Tom, and she ultimately deemed it a beastly film. Uh, okay. Now, that's just a cherry picking, but y'all, like, long story short, critics hated, mm-hmm. hated this movie. Michael Powell couldn't get work for, uh, really, the rest of his career. Um, yeah. His friends and confidants, you know, they're all, they're on record in interviews being like, but he never stopped helping people make films. He just wasn't able to make films. <laughs> Jesus, can you imagine? And I recognize, once again, yes, 62 years time difference, but Mm-mm. I I can't imagine watching this movie. Like, sure, there there's moral decrepitude on screen. Like, that's what the film is investigating. But to say, oh, well, this filmmaker, like, he's the director. It's not even like he wrote the script to then blacklist him for making this gorgeous, really visually stunning movie right. is it's very disappointing and shocking. Well, and again, this this movie premieres two months before Psycho premieres in the United States. And you'll mm-hmm. notice that while that film, and we'll, I'll talk about more that, about that in a bit, but that didn't happen to Hitchcock. <laughs> no, it certainly didn't. <laughs> so anyway, Peeping Tom earned a cult following in the years after its initial release. And since the 1970s has received a critical reappraisal. Right. Powell noted in his autobiography, I make a film that nobody wants to see, and then 30 years later, everybody has either seen it or wants to see it. Does that sound like John Carpenter to you? I was going to say, <laughs> oh, this sounds like all those poor directors who are basically in cult jail and just think like, where were you fuckers when this movie came out? <laughs> uh, and Again, I really want to know what the cult films from today are going to be in 30 years, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, everybody keep track of the films that you really like or the ones that you really hate. And we'll come back and compare notes in like 30 years. Mm-hmm. So an account of the film's steady reappraisal can be found in Scorsese on Scorsese. It's a book edited by Ian Christie and David Thompson, but it's basically comprised of interviews with Scorsese that chart his journey um, across the years of uh, as he searched for new subjects to engage him and inspire him. Hmm, okay. Sure, it's great. Martin Scorsese mentions that he first heard of the film as a film student in the early 60s. Oh, also, I should preface this. Martin Scorsese is apparently solely responsible for uh, the reappraisal of Peeping Tom. (laughs) Uh, I mean, he's a good man to have in your corner because he is considered, like, one of the foremost experts on, like, quality cinema, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I know who Martin Scorsese is. (laughs) 
who is this guy? Has he even done anything? He doesn't sound famous to me. Scorsese. Um, so, yeah, he heard of the film as a film student in the early 60s. And uh, this is when Peeping Tom opened in one theater in Alphabet City, which Scorsese notes was a seedy district of New York. So, again, like, wow. if you if you found this film in 1960, like, it was yeah, lucky. Good on you. Yeah. But he first saw it himself in 1970 through a friend who owned an uncut 35mm color print. And... In 1978, Scorsese was approached by a New York film distributor, Corinth Films, which asked for $5,000 for a wider re-release. Now, hmm. Scorsese gladly complied with their request, which allowed the film to reach a wider audience than its initial cult following. He also got it to screen at the 1979 New York Film Festival, and then oh, wow. someone at WB was like, hey, let's remake this. So they all watched it together, because so many of these film producers had never heard of this film, or at least had a chance to see it. Right. When the credits rolled, they all looked at each other and go... Well, can't top that, and decided nope. not to remake it. Wow. That is impressive, uh, and something that would never happen today. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scorsese, when discussing the shift in opinion on the film, he said, I think it depends on society at the time, and what is allowed to be said or what is allowed to be expressed. Because Powell expressed the danger of filmmaking in a very, very unhealthy sense. Um, everything had a kind of very forbidden feel about it. People didn't want to see that on the big screen. Right. The problem with Peeping Tom at the time probably is that you have this serial killer, horrible man, yet he's presented as someone who touches you in a way. From the mm. very beginning, something about his eyes and his quiet, especially when he photographs those models. It's a kind of unease and empathy with this person, and I think it shocked people. Many critics reacted violently against it because they don't want those parts of themselves to be touched. But as to why it's more accepted now, I think it speaks directly now to the world we're in. Yeah. The morbid urge to gaze. It's actually more relevant today than when it came out. And at the same time, Mr. Vincent Canby of the New York Times in 1979 says this. There's nothing angrier than a critic when he can be safely outraged. Peeping Tom's rediscovery, I fear, tells us more about fads and film criticism than it does about art itself. <sighs> Only someone madly obsessed with being the first to hail a new auteur, which is always a nice way of calling attention to oneself, could mm. spend the time needed to find genius in the erratic works of Mr. Powell. <laughs> that that doesn't sound timely or applicable to any conversations that we've had recently right i mean okay, look i i am not saying like hey y'all don't 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 like hate on a film because it portrays a character or in like who is despicable in a positive light or whatever i mean again mm -hmm. we've had these discussions about so don't breathe times. too last year or um i mean we go look at texas chance on massacre for other political things but sure it's it's so funny to me. <laughs> and it, again, like, you know, obviously you should talk about how these things are done and how mm -hmm. they are critiqued. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, we have a villain here who is sympathetic, who we like. And I'm not trying to compare apples to apples to the lead character slash rapist and Don't Breathe and Don't Breathe too. But that was the first thing I thought of when I read these quotes. <laughs> right. And I think one of the important distinctions that I would make between something like Don't Breathe 2, which, folks, if you want to hear our thoughts on it, you can yep. go and listen to our Patreon episode on it. But I think the difference there is that it's hard to say that that's a well-made film. Mm -hmm. um, so even though it does ask us to empathize with a really despicable person, that's not, I think, what a lot of people had issue with. It was that it was not done well. Whereas... I think a lot of people would watch Peeping Tom and make that empathetic connection. Well, I wonder, and I mean, I, I'm like totally speculating here, but let's say some studio gets its hands on remake rights for Peeping Tom, right? They up the violence. They up the, like, the implications that the mm -hmm. film does. So it 
you're seeing a lot more and thus makes this character a lot more despicable. I mean, hell, let's say they make it an exploitation film right. and it's still asking you to do these things. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying it makes it better, but I, I imagine people would view it. I mean, and let's say it's the most beautifully shot film you've ever seen in your fucking life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, people are going to have issues. I'm not saying that oh, people can't have issues or can't have issues, whatever. But I think um, what makes this maybe an easier pill to swallow nowadays is that we're not seeing a lot of these things. That is true. Yeah. So I I have two points then. Yeah. And one of them only you can answer because I haven't seen it. But what mm. about something like the remake of Maniac with Elijah Wood? Ooh. Because I remember that one made people feel very uncomfortable. The gore had obviously been elevated, which was <laughs> something of a marvel considering the original. Right. But... You know, it's POV, uh, it's Elijah Wood, who is, you know, cute as a button. But I remember people talking about how the movie made them feel gross because of the way it was shot, even though it was shot very artfully. Yeah, um, I... Uh, so, I love, I love the Maniac remake. Mm-hmm. I think that actually would be the best comparison for what a modern-day peeping Tom could look like. I think... Hmm, I'll say this, and you can okay. push back. Yeah. I think the difference is in neither one of these films is the villain slash protagonist sexually assaulting women. Right. It's okay. quote unquote just murder. Murder. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't make it better. But I mean, again, given the times we are in right now, I do think that, you know, if you had this person committing sexual assault, mm-hmm. it would immediately remove any sympathy someone could have for them. Even though, technically speaking, the fact that they are murdering women should do that anyway. Right. No, but I absolutely do think you you nailed it because that is one of the big issues that people had. And that was one of the big issues I had with Don't Breathe Too is like, it's hilarious in a way, but I am far more forgiving of cinematic murder than mm-hmm. I am with cinematic rape and sexual assaults. And, and I'm not saying it's in 30 years, people are going to be like, oh, it's just rape. It's fine. But God, <laughs> let's hope not. But 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 I mean, again, in the 60s, like, you know, it was murder and like, yeah, putting mm-hmm. you in the mind and the, the eyes, literally putting you in the eyes of a murderer was not something people wanted at least the breads and just like today yeah people don't want to be put in the eyes or the the position of a sexual assaulter of a rapist so Mm -hmm. i mean i I, i'm not again i'm not condemning or advocating for either one i just think it's very interesting when talking about film criticism again that quote from camby when it's like it's what what is the fad at the time for Mm -hmm. film criticism and a lot of us i mean some of us a lot of us whatever sure we'll put that through our like that's the lens we're watching things through Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons why Peeping Tom ended up being reevaluated is because of what happened culturally, socially, between the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. If you even look at the number and the way that we were looking at crime and like serial killers and that kind of stuff, like, yeah. that's where we start to see the boom is into the 60s and 70s. So in a way, Peeping Tom and Psycho are more prescient. And when we come out the other side of it, and suddenly these kinds of men, because it is often men, yep. are part of our everyday existence, I think suddenly you look at Peeping Tom and say, oh, this is just a reflection of our modern existence. Whereas in 1960, it was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Don't be saying that about me. And, and I'm not saying we're going to be looking at Don't Breathe 2 in like 30 years and people are going, oh my God, like, that's such a classic. So. Ah. No, I, <laughs> but I do not think so. <laughs> hey, who knows? Maybe... <laughs> <laughs> again i'll see you in 30 years everybody <laughs> exactly <laughs> set that alarm but all of this being said i would be remiss if i didn't mention again alfred hitchcock's psycho in comparison yes. to peeping tom so mm-hmm. 
as I said earlier, Psycho was given its New York premiere in June 1960, two months after Peeping Tom's premiere in London. And mm-hmm. some similarities, both films feature as protagonists atypically mild-mannered serial killers who obsess with one of their parents. However, despite containing material similar to Peeping Tom, Psycho became a box office success and only increased the popularity and fame of its director. Right. Although the film was widely criticized in the English press. Hmm. One reason suggested is that Hitchcock, seeing the negative press reaction to Peeping Tom, because I guess he was, I don't know, getting London papers in Hollywood, <laughs> whatever. Oh, sure. I mean, he's a Brit, so he's keeping track of what's working back in the homeland. Sure. Um, well, he decided to release Psycho without a press screening. Uh, so... <laughs> So there were no pre-reviews before the premiere for the public. Interesting. (laughs) Oh, Hitch, you you were so ahead of the curve. Yeah, he was like, okay, I don't want to end up like Powell, so let me me do this. But once the press did get to see the film with all the other plebes on opening night, uh, their reviews were mixed. Uh, They criticized the lack of subtlety in Psycho, the low-budget aesthetic, the slow build-ups. They called it melodramatic. They called it a gimmick movie, um, a a blot on an honorable career. (laughs) Uh, there were fair performances in the film, despite an unsatisfactory conclusion. Uh, some critics, especially British ones, even walked out of the film because they were so offended. So right. it's not as bad as Peeping Tom because it it wasn't as hyperbolically negative and like there wasn't as much vitriol, but like it was mm-hmm. there. Right. But I think the difference is Powell stayed in Britain and, uh, and Hitchcock had already been in the States. And I think that the United States of America uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> was less going to be like, fuck you, Hitchcock, never make a movie again. I think the Hollywood system was like, no, 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 keep making us money. Right. Well, I wonder also if part of it was that the UK press got their kicks out on Powell. So they were like, fuck this dude. He's offensive. And then another like-minded movie comes out. But it's like, ah, oh, Hitch, you went to the US and you you did it, boy. You know, he you really broke through. You're making us proud. So even though we don't love this movie, we still like you. Well, and so, but that's that American mindset, though, because, again, some people think that for Britain, the reason it was so hated in Britain was, um, A, the lack of previous screenings. So they had to mm-hmm. turn up at a set time and wouldn't be admitted to the film after it had started. So it was the inconvenience of having to go see a film with the public was, I guess, <gasps> more bothersome to British critics than it was to American critics at the time. Horrifying. <laughs> Maintain that division. Keep keep the plebes away from us. Yes. Well, and they, and they didn't like the gimmicky promotion, you know, like Hitchcock's right. like whole thing, mm-hmm. which, I, again, maybe it's across the pond, like just different like sensibilities there. But mm-hmm. they also think that Hitchcock's expatriate status was contributing to it. Like they had felt betrayed by Hitchcock for going over right. to America. Yeah. And, and I wonder even if they felt like he had been corrupted by American sensibilities in making like this schlocky film. Right. Right. Maybe so. But nevertheless, one has to guess, right? Like, if Michael Powell had, like, been nabbed by a Hollywood producer and taken over to Hollywood, mm-hmm. would things have been different? I mean, they would have been different, but would they have been better? I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those sad things, right? Where I think because he stayed in the UK, it was the end of his career. Whereas if he hadn't made this movie in the US and he didn't need to rely on the UK film industry he yeah. he might have been able to continue working well and that's the thing too right hollywood we're dealing with studios financing things whereas mm-hmm. in the uk it's the commonwealth right <laughs> the commonwealth uh, is that what it is, is that what, did i get it right I, I mean yeah yes okay <laughs> We'll say yes. <laughs> we'll say yes. But nevertheless, the fact that these two films premiered like within two months of each other is mind boggling because it yeah, is. yeah, the issue is you, as I said earlier, you couldn't find Peeping Tom 
for 20 years. It wasn't until 79 when Scorsese showed it at the New York Film Festival. And like all, that, that's when it started becoming more widely known and right. available to people. Yeah. So according to Isabeth McNeil, the film fits well within the slasher subgenre, which was influenced by Psycho. But she mm-hmm. lists a number of elements in which it shares with both Psycho and the genre in general. So again, I mean, people always talk about Psycho being the start of the slasher genre. And unfortunately... Yep. It does start here. <laughs> so, well, it's it's the same thing as like Black Christmas and Halloween, right? Yes. Like technically there are other films that are involved. I mean, it, it's part of the problem with ascribing too much weight to one single film as though yeah. there aren't other films doing the same thing. It's just like which film hits like lightning. Well, right. Which film did more people see? And that's going to yeah. cuz I guess you could say this, right? Cuz Peeping Tom, yes, they did it first. But mm-hmm. because so many more people saw Psycho, that's why it is called the more influential film, because more people probably Absolutely. saw that and then use that moving forward. No one saw Peeping Tom. Exactly. Yeah. Which sucks for Powell. It does. But both films feature a recognizably human killer who stands on as the psychotic product of a sick family. Uh, mm-hmm. Both films have a victim being a beautiful and sexually active woman. Both films have the location of the murder being not within a home, but within some other quote unquote terrible place. Both films feature the weapon being something other than a gun, and both films feature the attack registered from the victor's point of view and coming with shocking suddenness. Hmm. Okay. But yeah, uh, luckily, less we're all like worried, Powell did get to see the reputation of Peeping Tom rise and rise before his death in 1990. It's considered a masterpiece now and among the best horror films of all time, uh, and no shortage of because of the following things. Uh, in 2004, Total Film named Peeping Tom the 24th greatest British film of all time. In 2005, they also listed it as the 18th greatest horror film of all time. Right. The uh, Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments had this as number 38. In 2010, The Guardian named it the 10th best horror film of all time. Wow. A 2017 review in The Telegraph listed it as one of the best British films ever made. Uh, so yeah. Rotten Tomatoes, we've got a score of 96% with an average score of 8.7 out of 10. And on Letterboxd, we've got an 8 out of 10. Wow. Yeah, those are some pretty high scores. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's so fascinating to me. I don't really know if I have anything else to add to this discussion. I just, I feel so bad for this guy. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's kind of one thing when people make a shit movie and it really fucks up their career. But it's another thing when people are making legitimate works of art that end up becoming hallmarks of a genre. Like things that people point to and say oh, here, this is art. And it's like, and it fucked up their career. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Director's jail for life. Really? Yeah. Like, I'm just going to say, I can think of many other directors who should go to cinematic jail (laughs) of Mr. Powell. Well, do they make money? Uh, Well, that is a different topic of conversation, (laughs) right? I mean, if this movie had done well, I wonder if that would have been a different factor too, right? Because it would have been, oh, well, he made a movie in poor taste, but the movie made a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't make money. So it was really easy to kick him to the curb. Instead of this, it's like the director of The Red Shoes just made this horrible, fucking disgusting film. It's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Yes. Yep. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, okay, let, let, let's go into the, the movie itself, Joe. All right. So interestingly enough, my notes technically start after the beginning of the film. But I realized in reading people's reviews that a lot of people like to zero in on the archery logo. And some people have speculated that the eye opening is not actually Mark Lewis, Carl Bohm's oh. 
uh, eye, but actually that of a woman, and that it is already sort of creating this visual sense of like, there's malice towards women, and it's going to be all fixated on like voyeurism and eyes. So See, I thought that was interesting. I, I wrote that. I was like, oh, we opened on, I said our protagonist's eye. Mm-hmm, me too. I, I just assumed it was a way to be like, hey, here is the point of view where we are going to, you're going to be for the rest of this film. So I, I thought mm-hmm. that would make sense for it to be his eye. So it's like, hey, this is going to be you, this eye, for the next hour and 41 minutes. Yeah, no, I, I basically thought the same thing, but I've read mm. some people interpret this as it's almost extra diegetic, like it's removed from the rest of the events of the world of this film. We haven't mentioned this, but this is a movie about filmmaking. Yes. I mean, we've mentioned the voyeuristic aspects, but he also works in a film studio. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is one of the reasons why Scorsese ended up latching onto it, because he feels like it's actually reflective of the insidious side of filmmaking. Oh, absolutely. And there's there's definitely a metatextual aspect here, which I'm sure added oh, God, to, yes. the, to making people uncomfortable, especially film critics who, uh-huh. I mean, again, new film. <laughs> oh my god is this what goes on in the filmmaking world i'm shocked and aghast yeah yeah hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Okay, so regardless of whoever's eye we end up opening on, we do then follow Mark Lewis as he turns on a camera that is attached to his chest. So, hey, Steadicam 1960. <laughs> Not really, <laughs> oh my because God. it's a little bit shaky. <laughs> But he has to hide this thing in his coat at all mm-hmm. time, to, to the point where, because he sees a woman walking down the stairs, like in this in this sex worker's uh, like building house, lodging house. Mm-hmm. And later, the cops are like, "Oh yeah, she couldn't see his face, but she had he had he was holding something that she couldn't make out." And I'm like, "Really? Right. She couldn't see a his blonde hair, mm-hmm. which maybe he was wearing a hat, but also this sure. giant camera <laughs> that he's hiding in his coat." Yeah, not exactly the most conspicuous because, of course, cameras were quite a bit larger in 1960. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess he's he's done some alterations or made this a little bit easier to negotiate. Who knows? <laughs> Does it? Because like, the whole beginning of this movie is with like is from that POV of that camera. And we have those lines mm-hmm. like the crosshairs, the crosshairs. There you go. But I love that the movie starts like this because literally every scene in the future where that mm-hmm. where those crosshairs come out. It, like, immediately puts you on edge. Oh, for sure. Yeah, like, the the connotation that we are basically lining women up to murder them in the same mm-hmm. way that we would shoot a deer out in the country is, yes. you know, right there on display in this opening scene. And I also just think, you know, if we're thinking about the historical legacy of slashers, this movie opens with a murder like it it sets the tone it establishes it and we see so many horror films end up taking this route right well and also because um as we said the film looks gorgeous but there's something about the first shot of this film it it looks like it's on a a soundstage with a backdrop Mm -hmm. it calls to mind maybe it's just because it's london but like jack the ripper Uh uh-huh oh you can't get away from that legacy no i mean again it's britain and someone killing sex workers in london okay that's Mm -hmm. jack the ripper (laughs) yeah Basically, the only difference is that he's added a technological component that makes it more modern. 
Oh my god, see, do an eject the ripper story, and that's gonna be it's Jill Roberts eject the ripper. <laughs> I've installed cameras all over Soho, bitch. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Uh yeah, so he does end up following sex worker Dora, who is played by Brenda Bruce upstairs. She disrobes, and then uh we see him close in on her as she looks aghast. And then we end up re-watching all of this again, only in black and white, as Mark um I mean, some people interpret this as he's basically masturbating to the film as yeah. the credits roll. No, when Gus Van Sands remakes a shot for shot, it's gonna be an additional <laughs> shot of him masturbating to this photo. So okay, he kills three women. In this movie. Mm-hmm. This one isn't immediately like, oh, you're a sex worker. I'm picking you up and I kill you immediately. But then right. with Vivian later, we get like a date. I mean, it is a date, mm-hmm. but it's like this tete-a-tete of sorts where he like, it's a, a, an evolution of his killing method almost. Right. Well, I think he he starts to kill people that he's closer to, right? Like, we don't get the sense that he has a relationship with Dora in this opening scene. Like, right. e- everything that we know, of which we know very little, is that he has solicited her on the street and then he murders her. He knows Vivian. He works with her. He has worked yep. with Millie several times, as yep. far as we know. So. I think it, it speaks to the evolution of a serial killer where they become more brazen. But also to me, I look at it and I'm like, well, Mark wants to be caught. Like he has thrown yeah. caution in the wind. But early in this stage when he's killing Dora, he's like, I'm just making my movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the next morning he is still collecting footage because he is doing that creepy serial killer thing where he stands on the outskirts of this crowd and he is still taking photographs and camera footage as the police are taking Dora's body away. And he even gets questioned and he makes up a lie. And then he goes to work at one of his jobs, which is shooting... I'm going to say tasteful nudes or like pinups, I think you said earlier. <laughs> yeah, pinups. And this is on the second floor of Chapman's magazine shop where Mr. Peters Bartlett Mullins discreetly sells pornography to men under the auspices of educational books. <laughs> okay, there's there's not a lot of comedy in this movie, but there is a mm-hmm. little bit. And Oh, I think this movie has a lot of comedy. Oh, I mean, look, we'll, we'll get to the fainting actress <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> later. Mm-hmm. But no, this whole bit where the, yeah, this guy is trying to buy, he's like, I, he says, oh, I hear you sell views here. Mm-hmm. So he's buying porn. He's like, oh, we have the, he, he, he's like, oh, it's five quid or five whatever pounds. And <laughs> he's like, oh, I'll throw in like these two papers. And he's like, okay, cool. Yep. But then he forgets the papers. And he's like, oh, mm-hmm. right. I got that in addition to the porn. <laughs> Yeah, and then he leaves, and Mr. Peters just turns and says, well, he won't be doing the crossword tonight. Oh, it's so funny. (laughs) And you know what's weird? I don't think I caught that when I was, like, 19 years old watching this movie. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not really explicitly stated. And, of course, at this point, we've just seen Mark come in here, so we don't understand his relationship except that we know he works here in some capacity. I thought this was his job, like, working in a magazine or a newspaper shop. And Mm -hmm. then, no, he he goes upstairs, and waiting for him is Millie, played by Pamela Green, as well as a new girl, Lorraine, played by Susan Travers. And, I mean, Millie is a spitfire she is talking shit about how she's got a fiance but also she has a boyfriend on the side and Mm -hmm. they find out about each other and he beat her up so she's like hey can you cover up my bruises and make sure that i look really pretty in these photos and you're just like oh okay we're we're doing some commentary on gendered violence and sex work 
but you know millie is a great fucking character and i love her right from the go yeah she 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 is delightful now okay so i because it's not for money because he doesn't need money but do you think this is a job that he had as a way to like satiate his urges and then maybe it stopped being enough and that's because as far as we know the first person he kills is dora in the beginning Hmm. right well we're not given any more information so i think it's a safe assumption to make but you raise a very interesting point because yeah you could look at this as he's actually just trying to get time behind the camera and like build up a portfolio like this Mm -hmm. is work he can do because he's not the cameraman on the movie set that he works his day job at so you could say oh he's just getting in practice time but yeah due to the sexualized nature of the violence in this film you could say oh this is him baby stepping towards killing women yeah yeah uh i mean i I don't need the extra backstory but it's yeah it's one of those things where it's like oh shit because even at the end like Mm -hmm. he puts on all those tapes for helen and he's like look at all their screams they're all synchronized whatever so it's like okay well is this the three women he's killed in this movie or is it those three women plus a bunch of others you know Mm -hmm. yeah or is it intermixed with his screams as a child or the screams of other people that he taped in the building because of course he's got that whole building rigged for sound and video well so that's the other thing okay so michael powell voices the father his father in this movie and michael powell's son plays the young version of carl um Mm -hmm. i'm sorry of, of of mark and a, critics hated that. They thought that was child abuse. Um, B, okay. <laughs> every time that we heard the the child scream when we couldn't, mm-hmm. when it wasn't, when it was just off screen, it sounds like a woman's scream. It kind of does. Yeah. And, you know, uh, children who haven't gone through puberty, a lot of boys sound like women. Uh, hard to tell. Who knows? I mean, I wonder if that's playing into our queer reading of Mark. I mean, again, this may not be correct to say, but to me, this actor does look queer. Definitely giving off queer vibes, for sure. Mixed mixed with a bit of Peter Lorre's face. Yes. Uh-huh. But um but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just because we have a man who is sexually reserved to an extent and kind of effeminate and prim and proper that we're like mm-hmm. to me it codes him as queer, but Well, it's fascinating that you brought up Peter Lorre. And folks, if you don't know who that is, he is a really famous German actor, uh, mostly known for his role in M, which is Fritz Long's film about one of the first serial killers. And Peter Lorre frequently played gay or queer coded in a lot of mainstream films. So to me, I was like, oh, here's this German actor in this British film which is about a serial killer and I'm getting these queer coded vibes again. So I, I was very much on that line with you. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad. (laughs) The other interesting thing that this film does is that Mark has an obsession or at least an interest in people with disabilities. So we have Lorraine who has, I wrote it as kind of a cleft lip or just a disfigurement on her lip. And he Mm -hmm. is so immediately attracted to it and i think it's because again if we're thinking of a queer reading he is looking at the people who are othered or who are considered yeah. like quote-unquote imperfect i i 100 read it the same way as well and okay so historically i don't i don't know if i've told you this before if i've said on the pod but historically when i would seek out partners be they mm-hmm. uh, romantic or sexual Okay. I would actually look for people that had not necessarily a flaw, but had like self-esteem issues in some shape, way, or form, be it about a specific thing or just an overall kind of thing. Because okay. I found that I actually got pleasure 
not just sexual, but just like, you know, I made me happy to mm-hmm. make someone feel better about their insecurities. Um, but also because I had a lot of insecurities growing up gay. So, right. It was like a projection where you realize you could make a difference in somebody by addressing something that you yourself had struggled with. Yes. Like I didn't want anyone to be as sad as as sad as I ever felt at my most sad from from what made mm-hmm. me othered. Right. Yeah, and and I mean, that's really interesting in this particular scene. This is the only time that we're going to see Lorraine, but her yeah. introduction is that this is her first time getting her photo taken, and she specifically says, don't take a picture of my face, because she is embarrassed by her disfigurement, mm-hmm. and instead, Mark turns that into the thing that he is most interested in, and... I almost wish that we could get something more like I wish we could see a picture of the shot where he like either walks Lorraine through how beautiful she is or I I don't know like there there's something so fascinating about this and it's just teased. Well, and it, it endears me more to Mark. But at the same time, though, okay, what is the line between Oh, like, I find you beautiful, you shouldn't feel bad about this, like, let me capture this. As opposed to fetishizing their, their, I don't want to say deformity, that sounds bad, but like, you you know what I mean? Her lip. Fetishizing her lip. Yeah. And the question is uncertain. Like, it really, it could go either way because uh, uh, there's so much interesting psychology. And this movie is, let's say it, fucking obsessed with Freudian psychology. Yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) like, the fact that he is maybe turned on by her lip and or maybe sympathetic to her lip Yes, the answer is yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So this is our introduction to what Mark Moonlights as. And then we get an idea of what his social life is like. So he goes home and he observes that there is a 21st birthday party happening downstairs for his neighbor, Helen Stevens, who is played by Anna Massey. And she invites him in and he declines so that he can go up because he wants to look at his murder video. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't take no for an answer. She ends up inviting herself into his apartment. And I mean, again, if we're talking Freudian psychology, but also for me, the queer reading, he doesn't offer her a drink. He doesn't hit on her. He offers her a glass of milk, which is like okay. the most fucking infantilizing thing that you could ever offer someone. I clocked that too. Okay, because for me, I was like, oh, it's like cum too. It's like white milky oh fluid. Oh my god, um, Trace. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But but here's the thing. I love I love milk. Um, I drink three glasses of milk before bed every night. I'm not even joking. Like half a gallon of milk. There's so many people who are just like, ew, folks. Milk is normal. It's fine. It's actually good for your bones. Have a it's glass really of milk good. every once in a while. But that being said, though, when she is so excited about this milk, because he, yes. he, he he's like, oh, let me offer you a drink. Oh, I don't have one. Uh, can I get you some water? And I think she says, do you have a glass of milk? Oh, no, he, he, oh, you're right. He's, he says, oh, I have milk. And she goes, oh, I'd love that. <laughs> so excited. So excited. <laughs> I was like, oh, kindred spirits. Yes, but th- this to me frames their relationship right off the bat mm-hmm. as not one that is sexual. Like, he is not actually interested in her in that way, which is why he's like, here, let's have a glass of milk. It's like we're children. The way, okay, the way he behaves, because I, I, you know, we have that quote from the writer who's like, no, it's, it, it's his, his paraphilia is sexual. But, mm-hmm. okay, I don't know about you, but we've talked about how we discovered we were gay before, like, you know, and all that stuff. But like, I, I loved hanging out with, girls when i was growing up oh yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i thought it made me straight until i started having sexual thoughts and then i realized that i just liked the company of women yes but i was sexually attracted to men Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of what i get from mark here i think he likes helen's company 
Yeah, because he is lonely and he is isolated, right? Like, he is entirely driven by the sexual urges that are associated with his trauma, but it also means that he just cuts everyone out of his life, and specifically women, right? Like, you know, we'll get into it, but he has a lot of hang-ups about the death of his mother, and I get the impression that as a result, he has not formed any kind of relationships with women. Helen is the only person he speaks to that is female identifying in this film that he doesn't end up murdering well and it's not even the trauma that his father like caused him based on the videos we're about to see in the film but it's also Mm -hmm. because as he says later he didn't have a single moment of privacy because every room in the house was wired for sound so he literally never grew up with Mm -hmm. any sense of privacy so it's it's not just the dad scaring him which obviously that's a big part of his trauma it is that lack of privacy that led him into this Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, like, it, I mean, this movie is fascinating for all of these reasons, like, specifically the way that it approaches psychology and trauma and what it does to people, but then also how Mark has almost created these, <sighs> they're almost like coping mechanisms, they're obviously not quite working because he is murdering women, but, you know, his dependency on his camera as a way to take a step back from having to form legitimate relationships with other people he's like oh well i just have to videotape them instead like that's how i see the world is through a filtered lens yeah he can only care for someone if they're on celluloid basically yeah because then he doesn't actually have to interact with them yeah i also love too that both of the opening kill and this there's this constant tease of the flashing light that's on Mm -hmm. their faces when they're getting scared or killed and we don't find out what that is until the end of the film but i love i love this is like the like a mo for the killer Mm -hmm. and having just done our audio commentary for nightmare and on street three last month it immediately Mm -hmm. reminded me of like hypnosis because it's again like all about the pop psychology well, that's what I thought, again, because I hadn't seen this movie in over 10 years, so I forgot what this was. And so I thought, yeah, it was some kind of hypnosis technique or trying to trigger a response from him uh, when mm-hmm. he was being filmed, but yeah. not really the case. No, no, we'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yes, he offers her a glass of milk. He reveals that he is the secret landlord of this building and that he inherited it from his father and that it used to be the family home and then it was broken up into individual apartments. A lot of stuff with class in this film as well, right? Like, so mm-hmm. we do have all of the quote unquote uh, lower members of society with the sex workers and then. We've got this story of Helen and her elderly mother who can basically not afford to move away from this creepy dude because the (laughs) rent is too good and they can't afford to go somewhere else. Yeah. So because it's her birthday, Helen asks if she can see one of his movies because she learns that he is an aspiring filmmaker. Of course, in his dark room that he has adjoining this main room, uh, she's dazzled by all the chemicals and all the different technology that he's got. And then he's like, huh, what movie can I show her that doesn't involve me murdering someone? (laughs) So he puts on his trauma video. So this is where we learn that, yes, uh, when he was younger... Young Mark, played, as you mentioned, by Columbia Powell. Uh, He was abused by his father. And we see, we kind of see this evolution, right? So it starts off innocently enough. And then it becomes like, oh, your dad videotaped you watching a couple make out to like shame you. 
Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, and then your dad dropped a lizard on your bed while you were sleeping and then filmed you waking up and being absolutely fucking terrified. But again, like, and that's maybe us as gay men, like we're really attuned to that that shame and sexuality thing. Not, not to say mm-hmm. that non-queer people can't experience shame around sexuality. I mean, again, this is like the late 50s, early 60s here. Right. We just get a heavier dose of it usually. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why we're you and I are probably picking up more of those queer undertones or tones <laughs> with that aspect of Mark. Yeah, like daddy was capturing my queerness on video for posterity. That's great. For science. Yeah, for science. <laughs> <laughs> so Helen is watching this and she's like, Jesus, fuck, what the hell is this? And Mark is like, here, let me just speed it up so you can get the full story. So he shows her his mother's death and then burial. And then the fact that his father remarried six months after the previous sequence. I love that he's oh. using film language to be like, this isn't my life. This is a movie. Six weeks after the previous sequence. Oh, six weeks. Oh, that's even worse. Yes. No, I, re- I wrote that down. I was like, girl, he had he had her lined up while that mm-hmm. mom was dying. <laughs> mm-hmm. And importantly enough, in the footage that we're watching on screen, we see Mark get his first camera. So we see his father videotaping him while Mark videotapes his father. And this is a recurring visual motif that will come up later when we get to Vivian's death. And I, I mean, I guess I, I guess some people could quibble and be like, well, it's not really trauma. He was just being filmed. But it's like, he just had uh, a no. lizard thrown on him. Or, granted, we haven't seen the full extent of what the dad was doing to try to scare him. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, because he's not physically abusing him, but this is definitely emotional abuse. Oh my god. Yeah. Off the chain <laughs> emotional abuse. And you, you said it, right? It's the fact that he could never get away from it. He was a vulnerable mind and his father basically used the house as a giant lab experiment which it is so interesting right for for the dad to to be a psychologist a scientist and Mm -hmm. not think about the repercussions this would have on his own child or maybe he did and he was like but it's worth it for science yeah i mean because i think he didn't have a relationship like a human relationship with his son so he was just like well other people can benefit from this because i don't have an emotional attachment to this kid yeah exactly I mean, you could very easily say, oh, and this is why Mark grows up to be who he is. Because that's, I mean, that's really the argument the film is making is like this kid got fucking horribly emotionally abused as a child and then grew up to be a serial killer. Well, and I guess I'm even comparing it to Psycho, right? Like, I don't want to say this is better than Psycho. Like, I don't want to compare them in that way. But Mm -hmm. I like this part of the film more, right? We do do get a moment later, which we're talking about where it's like, oh, here's a psychiatrist explaining what, what you are. Right. But at the same time, the movie is doing a lot of work throughout its runtime prior to that to explain that. Whereas with Psycho, mm-hmm. it's presented more as a twist, right? It's a twist reveal. Like, oh, right. we think the killer's the mother, but it's actually Norman Bates. Oh, he dresses up as his mother because he killed her, blah, blah, blah. That's mm-hmm. all relegated to the last, like, five minutes of that movie. Whereas at least with Peeping Tom, it's spread out throughout its runtime. Yeah, and this is, you know, just good old regular, you know, run-of-the-mill trauma. It's not homophobic, transphobic trauma. Yeah, also that. which maybe makes it a little bit easier for us to accept nowadays Uh, yeah (laughs) so helen eventually switches off the projector she escapes back into the better or well-lit room and uh yeah this is where we we get the history with mark's father and i love that mark says i'm sure it helps some people I did wonder how the dad had so much coverage, though, because we were switching shots, like, for a lot mm-hmm. in this movie. And I, I was like, I guess he had five cameras set up around his kid. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I read a couple of pieces that sort of move this into a contemporary frame of mind that it's like, oh, this movie anticipates things like reality television and even the way that we mm. have like apps that monitor us or that we can check to see who has looked at our profiles and so on. Like it's all about that that viewership. But yeah, like I look at this as, oh, OK, so Mark grew up in the original Big Brother house. God, 62 years ago, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> predicting reality television. Right? Yeah. Uh, so Helen is very disturbed by all of this. And this is when Tony, who is played by Brian Wallace, uh, he is the attractive downstairs lodger who is very clearly trying to court Helen throughout this movie. and <laughs> But also, like, not a character? No. Mm-mm. No, he he shows up to be a bit of a foil. But I think, again, if this movie was more interested in trying to advocate that Mark is a heterosexual, I do think that we would have to murder off Tony or we would have to deal with him in a more substantial way. Agreed. 100. Because I think the last we see of Tony is just the bit where mm-hmm. Helen comes home at the end and he's like, oh, like, you don't have much time for me anymore. But he's not even angry. It's just like a passing observation that he has. Yeah, I mean, he does send her up into Mark's room by lying to say that her mom went up there. But I don't I mean, I read it as malicious because we know that Mark is killing women. So it's like, here, send this girl into the lair of the beast. But Tony doesn't know that. Tony is just like, yeah, go up. Your future boyfriend isn't there. (laughs) So let's go to the set of the walls are closing in, Trace. And (laughs) God damn, do I love that title. I, it's so what is this movie about outside of like a woman buying a purse or a hat i mean is, <laughs> it a a thr- is it a thriller or is it a comedy or is it just yes i have yes i have questions <laughs> i have so many questions i would like to see this movie though because it looks <laughs> it looks charming and stupid like it, it happens a lot too when we have movies within a movie right where it's mm-hmm. like oh like you never want the movie within a movie to be more interesting than the movie that you're actually watching and that's not the case here but at the same time it's pretty close it's close <laughs> <laughs> if only for this actress though if only for this actress yeah so our introduction to the movie is watching actress pauline shields who is played by shirley Anfield, just do take after take of really shitty attempts at fainting in an elevator and this director is just so pissed at her because she cannot nail it and part of me was like is the comedy that she's a bad actress who can't do this or that he is i mean there's obviously you could make an argument that this is a commentary on like misogyny in filmmaking and like the way that male directors treat their their female ingenues, but it just seems like Pauline should maybe consider a different line of work because she's not the most talented actor. Well, but at the same time, because again, we have Vivian standing right here, who is literally the stand-in. Literally the stand-in. And I'm like, again, when you see her dance later, it's like, what is what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you you went with quote unquote the more attractive, conventionally pretty woman, and you've got this talent right there that you're not seeing. Yep. Yeah. So after the day shooting wraps, uh, we learn that Mark has a date with Vivian, who is played by Moira Shearer. So we follow her as she basically hides from the guard and she like sneaks in. And it's this very long protracted sequence where we see her lit up by lights and she doesn't Mm -hmm. quite know what happens. And we're confused as to the nature of what's going on. Like we know she has a date with Mark, so we're worried for her immediately. But she's so full of joy. Yeah. 
because she thinks that they're just going to do like a bit of an audition reel or that she's going to help him and she trusts him. And she does this warm up dance number that is fucking glorious and i just loved all of this like one of the best pre-murder sequences because yes we, we don't really know at this point if he's going to murder her um uh, well, yeah. i mean i kind of <laughs> did but it was kind of like when is it gonna happen because you just expect yeah. him to set it up and kill her and instead it's like there's a camaraderie you know she likes him he seems to like her and again, this is we're coming off of the red shoes, right? So of course mm-hmm. Powell's like, "Oh yeah, be in my movie. I'll give you two scenes, and you can literally have spend one of them dancing." Right? It's like two minutes that is devoted to mm-hmm. her dancing, and it is so the, the camera work, just mm-hmm. following her around this set. Yep, it's just it's so amazing. I, I don't know what other word for it. It's so awesome to watch. Yeah, and I mean, she just pops on screen, right? Like, she has so much charisma and personality. Mm -hmm. There's this moment where she decides she's going to film him using the giant camera that they've got set up for the actual movie. And she's like, oh, I've lost you. Oh, I found you. And it's like, it's so fun and playful. And I mean, if you're not subscribing to the queer reading, this could be seen as very pre-sex flirting. I mean, I think she's flirting with him or she's having a good time with him. And he's like, I'm just trying to set up my murder right now. You know, I, I, I'm i glad you say that, though, because I was very much like, a, does she view him as a potential sexual partner or does she view him as mm-hmm. because of how he is a more of like a child figure, like a plaything almost like not in a bad way, not in a, oh, I'm looking down on him kind of way, but more as like a, he's not a, a sexual object to me because he is the way he is. I I can definitely see it both ways. And the reason I would subscribe to your reading a little bit is because at one point she says that she she could never be frightened by him because she is too relaxed in his presence. And part of me mm. was like, hmm, that's sort of something you say to somebody when you're putting them in the friend zone. But also, <laughs> yeah, he's so, I don't know, he's non-threatening because he's childlike. Like, she can't imagine that he would be a danger to her until he reveals who he truly is well and they're in their place of work like there mm-hmm. are people around even though they are the only ones in this room right but it's yeah it's at the same i mean that's the thing too like when you said earlier oh he wants to get caught like this is the scene that proves this is it to high me. Like, stakes what are you doing man i have no idea what he was thinking with this <laughs> mm-hmm. so the other significant element about this set piece is that this is actually the reveal of his weapon and yes. Just in case you didn't want to read the phallic Freudianism into it, this is when he unsheaths his tripod penis so that he can line it up to her neck and then advance on her. The film is very bloodless, but the implications are always crystal clear. Well, and again, like murder, creative murder weapon, right? Like, why Mm -hmm. is this not talked about more? Oh my god, yeah. At the same time, I, mean, I, I get it, it's cinematic, whatever, but, like, when he's, like, killing her, like, she mm-hmm. really, he's, like, three feet away, and she is standing there screaming in fear. I'm like, girl, you better shift to the left, <laughs> shift to the right. <laughs> oh, my God. Do we have to mention Prometheus again? Charlie's just one to one side or the other. <laughs> but, I mean, but it, it makes for good drama. It makes for good drama. Absolutely. And I, I like the idea that we we think, oh, she's being a bit ridiculous. Why doesn't she make a break for it? And of course, we'll learn later that part of the reason that she doesn't is because she is transfixed by what he's doing to these people, right? Oh, but all, well, we we haven't said it yet, even though I teased it earlier, but she's also, she's looking at something. It's not mm-hmm. just the camera. It's not just the blade. She is looking at something yes. fixed to this camera that has her, for lack of a better term, hypnotized. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And this is tragic. I mean, again, like we just we've just spent like five to seven minutes like getting to know this character and really like latching onto her. As you Mm -hmm. said, she's so charismatic. And watching her, it's an interesting juxtaposition to how we are reacting to Vivian's death to Mark's reaction, right? Because we are, as the audience, are horrified. This is sad and Mm -hmm. terrifying. Whereas Mark is getting off to this. Yes. Yes. So we don't actually see what happens. We don't see what happens to Vivian's body, though we will. Instead, we cut back to the house. And this is our introduction to Helen's blind mother, <laughs> who is also a spitfire. I, I When she first showed up, I was like, okay, this is a weird character to introduce. Whatever. But then, like, she's good. I love this character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shout out to actress Maxine Oddly, because this is not a great role in mm-hmm. a lesser actress's hands but everything that she says is just like kind of gold like this is where i find a lot of the comedy in this movie well because she she's not the audience surrogate like she is the audience in this movie saying like run, no run away mm-hmm. <laughs> don't trust wrong this man him. yes exactly I will also say one of the things that endears me to her is the fact that she is a not-so-secret drunk, which reminds me a little bit of Miss Mac from Black Christmas. And, uh... But, you know, when Helen asks her mother, you know, like, oh, well, you know, what worries you? And her mother says, the price of whiskey. <laughs> also, to compare to Miss Mac, though, they both get uh, attacked in the attic. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, she survives this. She, uh, again, though, but that set piece is so good. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. We'll get there. So Helen hears that Mark has come home, so she goes upstairs. This is just a little bit more about, you know, establishing that they have a closeness, they have a relationship. Yeah. Also want to say, just in case you didn't think that Helen was a bit of an infantilized character or just <laughs> someone who is too sweet for this earth, this is when we learn that she has a job as a children's fucking librarian yeah this actress um anna massey she has a very unique look to her face right you want to talk about the fact that her eyes look a little bit far apart yeah her well it's also like like her face is like angled to like at a point at the center like it's it's just it's not unattractive it's just a very it's a very unique presence yeah like it stands out and i i can't help but think that because this film is making commentary about disability it also almost feels a little bit deliberate that we've cast this attractive woman, but she's attractive in a slightly unconventional way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So uh, following a test screening where we're reviewing some of the footage from The Walls Are Closing In, <laughs> this is when the director, Arthur Baden, who is played by Esmond Knight, demands that Pauline eject some more Comedy into the scene. So uh, we have this whole setup with trunks, and obviously, this is a very Hitchcockian moment because we know as soon as we see the giant fucking blue trunk <laughs> that that is where Vivian's body is. And it's a question of are they going to discover it? So we have to watch this actor try to lug this heavy looking <laughs> box out. And of course, they do find it. And this is when Pauline faints, and we get the funny line where the director says, That's silly bitch. She fainted on the wrong scene. So two things. I don't know if it's super important, but we did. We basically the the, the film is on like a rush schedule slash a tight yes. budget because the, the director is told in light of the economy drive, if you can see it and hear it, the first takes okay. Oh my God, yeah, <laughs> the one take wonder. 
And y'all, in Horror Queers, as a podcast, we are three for three on Bodies and Trunks after Le Diabolique mm-hmm. and Bride of Chucky and now Peeping Tom. Yeah, we love to put a body in a trunk. And honestly, I'm here for it every time. It's the same type of trunk, though. It's like what I would take on to summer camp. Yeah, it's like, oh, are we going to take a train trip later? Okay, yep. cool. <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> uh, folks, if you know any other trunk horror, please do let us know because trunk. we're always on the lookout. <laughs> okay, so we have discovered a body. It's very public, so we need to call the authorities. Enter Detective Sergeant Miller, played by Nigel Davenport, as well as Chief Inspector Gray, played by Jack Watson. So they arrive on the scene. They say, okay... We don't care that the movie is running long. Uh, We need to question everybody. So that does not please the studio head, Mr. Don Jarvis, played by Michael Goodliffe, but it's got to be done. Yep. And really, if you didn't think that Mark was pressing his luck, he's literally filming the police as they're coming in, as they're questioning people. And he even has like this cute cameraman friend who is on set who's like, dude, what are you doing? He's just like, I'm making a documentary. So I, I think that's why he, I mean, all serial killers, I mean, not all, but like they will do things like, they'll get more daring, right, mm-hmm. with each kill. And right. I feel like for this, it's like, honestly, it's a matter of convenience where it's like, oh, I don't have to, I won't have to go back to the street or the side of the murder. Mm-hmm. What if the side of the murder just was my place of work so I'd not <laughs> kill two birds with one stone? I bring the murder to me so that I don't have to go as far when I want to do the creepy snooping thing exactly that (laughs) i mean again we're about to get this whole fucking thing with his pencils falling out of his jacket so good yeah so i mean he he ends up charming these police officers so he gets away with it even though he is very clearly acting suspiciously well it's a ted bundy effect though where it's like oh he's such a nice guy Mm -hmm. he could never murder somebody exactly exactly that yeah so uh they basically release him and then he just kind of ducks out of sight and then climbs up to the rafters and films them as they're clearing Vivian's body away and talking more about the crime. And he's like, cool, now I got B-roll. <laughs> and then all these pencils fall out of his jacket mm-hmm. and just hit the floor. And all of them were like, did you hear that? Oh, well, I, okay. never mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got a murder to solve. We can't be following pencils. <laughs> So we got back to the house and we're following Mrs. Stevens a little bit more. She wants to know more about Mark. So Helen invites him in. Uh, I will give another shout out to one of her lines. Why don't we make him a present of that window? He practically lives there. I mean, okay, we didn't mention it. I mean, we we did say this, but like no one really bats an eye at the fact that he is at the window spying on their mm-hmm. party. Yeah, like, hey, did you see the voyeurism? He's literally peeking in windows. so he comes in and i mean this is his introduction to her and he is once again immediately attracted to her disability so he's fascinated by the fact that she is blind and he can't take his eyes off of her Mm -hmm. even as she's quite literally interrogating him and we hear the heartbeat escalating on the soundtrack Yes. Uh, I mean, the score isn't very pronounced in this movie, except when we're watching his tapes and we get that awesome piano score. And then it's like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so okay. powerful. Did you think it was diegetic or is it not? Because is it the music that he put over his recordings or is it non-diegetic? I read it as non-diegetic, but I've read a couple of different pieces that have talked about the sound design on this film and how it is deliberately kind of confusing as to what is within the world of the film and what is not. Oh, God, inject that into my... I love that. I mm-hmm. love that so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is Powell basically fucking with his audience at every possibility to make us feel things. Oh, God. They just, they just weren't ready for this shit in 1960. Honestly, it feels that way. It's like, oh, y'all weren't prepared. <laughs> Sorry you didn't like it because it made you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So they are going on a date, Mark and Helen are, and she asks him to leave his camera because he wants to bring it with him. And she's like, dude, it's a let's unplug, turn the phones off kind of date. And he's like, no, I need to bring my camera. So she ends up leaving it in her apartment. And this is when we get the reveal that her apartment is actually his mother's former room. So again, if we're thinking about this in Freudian pop psychology kind of ways, Helen is his mother surrogate. Yes, yes, yes. Ah, nail on the head, Joe. So they go on this date and he gets distracted not once but twice by people in sexual situations. They see a couple necking as they leave the building and then he sees a woman taking off her stockings on the way back. And Helen literally redirects him and rescues him from becoming obsessed and or turned on by this. I love these moments though, right? The the necking couple is the first way and (laughs) you're right and I... Because you can see it in his eyes. I mean, again, we haven't talked too much about about uh, Bohm, like in his performance, but he mm-hmm. he's doing the work here, and oh, it is. Yeah. But again, it's tragic, right? Because you want, even though he's already murdered two people in this movie, mm-hmm. you want him to succeed. And 100%. so when you see that, when you see him stop to mm-hmm. to, to peep <laughs> at these people that are necking, yeah. it's just your heart drops. And yeah, she saves him, and it's just oh yay, like. Yeah, hopefully this won't be a tragedy. I mean, it reminds me so much of all of these fatalistic tragedy films that we have seen. Like I'm thinking of May, where you yes. recognize that she's totally fucked up and she shouldn't deserve happiness. And yet because of the portrayal, because of the way that the character is written and because of the love interest, you're like, no, I want this for you, even though you're bad. I didn't even think about May as a comparison, but actually that's a really, really apt one, Joe. Because I feel like in May, when we talked about it, we talked about, oh, how would the, how would people react to this movie if May was a man? If we gender mm-hmm. flipped this movie, it'd be creepy, right? And here we are. <laughs> but but again, I don't, I mean, yes, Peeping Tom is creepy and, and Mark is creepy. But at the same time, like, I still empathize with this character the same way I do with May, even though I'm aware of the heinous acts that they are both committing. Mm-hmm. And I think the difference is that not the difference between the two movies, but the difference of why we don't find Mark worse is because he's creepy but he's not lecherous yeah which is funny considering he's a peeping tom a hundred percent (laughs) yep yeah and i i do you know i think i would worry about that if we ever did get a remake of this film is that he would be you know he would be vince vaughn masturbating looking through the hole well i mean that's a thing right we're taking a lot of the implicit and making it explicit and i i don't see a remake not doing that um now that's not to say you can't make it a good movie, mm-hmm. but you have to 
work with that. Well, I just don't think it needs it. Like, this movie is very much, we're actually not going to even show you. Like, we're not really telling you, but we're also not really even showing you. Like, the movie is so confident in what it's doing. It doesn't need to show us the murders. It doesn't need to show us him jacking off because, A, I mean, it's 1960, so you can't get away with that. But also, we always understand exactly what's happening, and that's just because it's well-constructed. Right, but do you see a studio greenlighting a remake to this movie and saying, hey, but make sure you keep the murders off screen? Oh, God, no. No, exactly. no, 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 no. <laughs> like, and, and make, make those pinup girls, they're going to be titties. Like, titties out constantly. Like, mm-hmm. it, I mean, like, <laughs> granted, cool. Rob Zombie's directing. <laughs> right, <yes>. <laughs> Rob <laughs> Zombie's peeping Tom. <laughs> oh, wow. Yep, could see it. <laughs> I, I would actually watch that. Hardcore, I would too, but... yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so the other aspect of this date is that we do get a ticking clock sound on the soundtrack. And I read that not as, oh, my heart is racing because of what I saw, the couple necking or the woman taking off her leggings. It's I'm separated by the object of my desire, which is the camera. I need to get back to the camera because when yeah. the date is over and Helen thanks him, she gives him a kiss. He does not kiss her back. He does not initiate. She gives him the camera. She closes the door. He makes it with the camera. Uh, uh, okay, okay. So I'll go into voyeurism later when we get to the psychiatrist scene. But no, like the, the t- yeah, the ticking is very much like a oh, how long before? How long can he be apart mm-hmm. from his from his yes. marital partner, which yes. is the camera? Yes, before before he snaps or explodes. A hundred percent. The way Powell frames, like, because again, the, 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 there's a shot when he first shows Helen in the film where he's like caressing and holding the camera as if mm-hmm. it was his child or lover. Yep. It's so sensual. Mm-hmm. It's so, I don't want to say sexual, but sensual seems the best word for it. The way he it holds is. and treats this camera mm-hmm. is as if he is in love. I mean, well, he is he in love is. with it, but like, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is the object of his affection, the object of his desire. He cannot bear to be separated from it for long periods of time. And I, I love it. Like, he runs up the stairs like, wow, I can't wait to go jerk off. Yes! Uh. <laughs> Which is a boner killer because waiting for him is Miss Stevens in the dark wait, room. Wait, 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 wait. Because we do have the, the bit where, because she, she mentions, she meaning Helen, mm-hmm. like filming her, and he freaks out. Yes. And he says, it will never see you. Whatever I photograph, I always lose. Because he knows mm-hmm. if he gets her in front of this camera, he will kill her and he will not be able to resist. Yes. Yeah. It's like he becomes a different person. He cannot control himself when he starts filming frightened women. But it's that self-awareness that makes his character so fascinating. And again, mm-hmm. like comparing to Norman Bates, Norman Bates is very much, um, He's not complicit in, in his murders, whereas right. Mark is. Mark is aware of what he is doing, and that yes. makes Mark, to me, more terrifying. Yeah, because Mark could try to control himself, but he finds that he can't, whereas, yes, in Psycho, Norman loses himself. He gets overtaken by Mother. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, two very different but interesting and comparative ways of approaching the same kind of character. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, we should mention also that uh, Tony witnesses all of this and he passive aggressively stumps into the bathroom to take a shower. I don't even remember that happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took a note of it because I was like, how often is this character going to come back? Because on a first time watch, I thought, oh, is Tony going to be the one who rescues Helen at the end? Because right. obviously we're going to build to that scene. Oh, God, that would have sucked. Right? <laughs> Which, you know, is what we do in Psycho. <clears throat> anyway. Yep. Oh, that's true. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. So Miss Stevens is waiting for him, and this is a fucking powerhouse scene. I firecrackers every minute because once again we know that she is in huge danger at this moment, right? Like he could kill her so easily, and she doesn't even know it. But kind of though, because she she. There, there was a point where I was like, well, shit, she's going to – because she raises her cane, mm-hmm. and it's got that pointy tip. So uh-huh. it's like, oh, we've got her matching his weapon, even though she doesn't yes. know it. Like, yes. she is so th- – this scene is a constant juggle of power. From mm-hmm. every line each of these actors speak, the power shifts between them. And it mm-hmm. is so fascinating oh, and so good. fun to watch. Yes. I honestly I, – I had to stop and look at the time because I wasn't sure that she wasn't going to kill him. Well, I, I, again, I forgot what happened. I thought he was going to kill her. And I, right. I thought that was going to carry us into the climax. And, mm-hmm. and that it doesn't, again, defies my expectations. And it's also like, she basically says, I know you kill people. I know that's what's on your film. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, she knows that he is up to no good. I don't think she knows the specifics, but she right. is terrified of his relationship with Helen. And she becomes increasingly more terrified for her own self. You know, because he is clearly making advances towards her, especially when he realizes that his film has been ruined or corrupted, right? Like, yeah, he's looking at the footage of Vivian and he realizes that the lighting is wrong. So he will have to reshoot. He needs a reshoot. And he thinks, okay, maybe I can just do it with her because she's here. But it's not right because she won't give him the performance he's looking for. We still don't understand quite why, but... I think at this moment we realize, oh, it has something to do with sight. Yeah. Okay. In this moment, it is literally her disability that saves her. Yes. Correct. But but it is the moment when he turns the light on her face when she completely, she's like, oh, shit. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm in trouble right now. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I mean, part of this is that if you understand the brightness and the heat that comes off of movie lights, it explains how she knows that there is light on her, but yeah. otherwise you'd be like, wait, how does she know? I thought she was blind. I, I thought the same thing, but yeah, I, I attribute it to the heat and yes, like, how bright that light is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I, it, it, it poked a, a tiny, tiny hole <laughs> in her blindness. Yeah. So this is also a similar kind of parallel to the earlier scene that we had with Helen, where she's watching the film and it's becoming more disturbing. And then she kind of breaks out of the dark room and into the regular quote unquote apartment. So this is what ends up happening with Miss Steven. She ends up asking him to promise that he will never photograph Helen. He agrees. And he also promises that he will never make the move. So once again, that issue of uh, class. class and this idea that some people cannot afford to move away from the danger that threatens their lives. Yeah. Yeah. So then he he literally takes her by the hand and guides her down the stairs himself, and she takes a picture of his face with her hands. Oh, see, I, I, so I watched this twice. I watched this yesterday, and I watched it again today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this the scene, because he's like, it's been a long time since I've had my picture taken. So he is literally right. reliving trauma right mm-hmm. now. But yeah, but in like a friendly way, like the danger between the two of them has passed at this moment. So this, I don't know, there's something so sweet about yes. this moment, right? It, it it gives you a glimpse into a potential life where he could, yes. through therapy, work through his mm-hmm. trauma and get over this. Because again, I mean, like, yeah, she is literally taking his picture by, by in her brain. It's it just adds to the tragedy because like I, mm-hmm. I don't know when you were watching this did you feel like this was gonna have a happy ending no God okay. no oh no no 
so it, it adds to the tragedy that you were feeling. Like again, mm-hmm. the movie's winding down. We've probably got about twenty minutes left, and like mm-hmm. doom and gloom. Yep. Yeah. But first, we have to go back to the walls are closing in. So we get. Maybe this is the final moment of comedy in this movie, but... Oh my god, it's so funny. <laughs> so they have set aside the trunks, because obviously that's going to be a trigger for Pauline when she's back on set. So they say, okay, we're going to do it with hats. And the minute she sees a red hat, she just has an absolute breakdown and runs off the set. He's like, do you have the hat in red? He brings the hat. It's red! I thought I wanted it blue! <laughs> <laughs> and she does the Cindy Campbell, I'm not crazy! Like, yeah. runs away with her arms waving <laughs> It is amazing. I love this actress. It actually reminds me of the actress from uh, Singing in the Rain and White Christmas, the woman with the very distinct voice, you know, mutual, I'm sure. Oh, yes, yes, And you're just like, I want a whole fucking movie with this actress (laughs) doing this character because this would be high comedy. I would love it. Oh, yeah. It's it's hilarious. And actually... You're going to hate me. I've seen Singing in the Rain on stage. I've never seen the movie. Oh, it's amazing. But but isn't that also like a movie within a movie? Aren't they filming a movie? It is, yeah. It's all about the conversion from silent era to talkies and how yes. certain people cannot put it because they don't have good voices. Yes. Okay. So I saw the musical when it toured, like when I was in high school. So I haven't, like, I'm very, like, like not memorable on it. But, like, yes. Okay. I remember mm. that aspect. <laughs> Yeah, your film professor was like, well, I could show you Singing in the Rain, but instead I'm going to show you Psycho. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if they ever made us watch a musical, which in hindsight, it's a really big missed opportunity. Oh, we we had like a whole unit on... Like classic Hollywood cinema? Musicals? Yeah, and musicals. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. That was good. So filming is is temporarily suspended, but we do have Dr. Rosen, played by Martin Miller, who is kind of observing everything. You get the impression this is the equivalent of, like, having a therapist on set after something traumatic has happened or having, like, a sex coordinator or whatever they're called nowadays, where it's like, we brought in a specialist to make sure that things go well. This guy is shit at his job, but he does have a role to play in Mark's life. I mean, he he's probably what a lot of male psychiatrists were in 1960. <laughs> right. So I do think that the scene is staged and framed in an interesting way. So the doctor is on a kind of rig, right? Like a lighting rig. So Mark ends up climbing up as it gets lifted up. So they end up getting taken out of earshot of the detectives who are also on the stage. Mm -hmm. And this is basically so that Mark can say, hey, did you know my dad? And Rosen says yes. And then he says you know, do you know what he was studying? And then this is where we get the definition of scopedophilia. Yes. Okay. So I'm coming back in with some research. So here we go. Okay. So first of all, the origin of the term peeping Tom, Mm. (laughs) it actually comes from the story of Lady Godiva from the 11th century, uh, a late Anglo-Saxon noblewoman who was relatively well documented as the wife of Leofric, Earl of Mercia, and a patron of various churches and monasteries. But today she is mainly remembered for a legend dating back to at least the 13th century in which she rode naked, covered only in her long hair, mm-hmm. through on the streets. Horse. Yeah, on a horse, exactly. Uh, Charm did this, where Phoebe uh, Alyssa Milano was Lady Godiva for a whole episode. Of course. But she was riding the streets naked with her hair to gain a remission of the oppressive taxation that her husband imposed on his tenants. The name Peeping Tom for a voyeur originates from later versions of this legend in which a man named Thomas watched her ride and was struck blind or dead. Depends on which Mm. version you hear. Now, 
The concept of voyeurism has evolved over the last century, and the DSM diagnostic criteria for voyeurism uh, as a paraphilia are as follows. And this pretty much describes Mark. The patient has a recurrent and intense sexual urges and sexually arousing fantasies involving the act of observing an unsuspecting person who is naked in the process of disrobing or engaging in sexual activity. Now, the important thing to know, it is the act of observing that is turning them <laughs> on. It is not the subjects of their observation. Yes. The person must experience significant distress or impairment in social occupational or other important areas of functioning because of the fantasies, urges, or behaviors. So as we see in the date with the ticking clock, mm -hmm. he is in distress because he is not able to satisfy those urges. Right. When severe, the act of peeping constitutes the exclusive form of sexual activity for the person. Uh, so masturbation. Again, applicable to Mark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, onset is usually in persons younger than 15 years, and the disorder tends to be chronic and a result of trauma. Now, this is all in contrast mm. to exhibitionism, in which a person is aroused by the act of displaying themselves to an audience. But the cause of voyeurism appears to depend on the individual, as usual, uh, and not on any one common characteristic factor. Uh, biological theories hold that testosterone, the hormone that influences the sexual drive in both men and women, increases the susceptibility of males to develop deviant sexual behaviors. And I really hate the word deviant hmm. because it's, you know, thrown around for us a lot. Okay. Learning theory studies have shown that emotional abuse and childhood and family dysfunction are both significant risk factors in the development of voyeurism. Now, ah. You may be listening to this and being like, going like, wait, I have voyeurism listed on my grinder profile as one of my hobbies or my interests. <laughs> Never uh, fear. No, we're talking about like a medical diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. So the, the definition has changed over the decades. So voyeurism now usually refers to the consensual keyword and potentially fulfilling sexual behavior that either exists within a relationship or doesn't prevent you from developing healthy relationships. Uh, in addition, people now use the word outside of specifically sexual context to describe the excitement that comes from viewing any kind of provocative or scandalous site. Hmm. So as of today, voyeurism can be an element of usual sex, a healthy fetish, uh, an occasional fantasy, but it can still be a disorder or a crime. So it's important to understand the behavior and its potential to become problematic. Uh, differentiating innocent enjoyment of nudity from behavior that is similar but deviant in other circumstances can be difficult. But the main thing to note is that responsible voyeurism requires the informed consent of all involved parties. And... <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like good sex to me. Th th that sounds like, yeah, a healthy sexual relationship. Uh, the only other bit I have is on the treatment of voyeurism. So in the cases of voyeurism, the need for long-term therapy and monitoring must be emphasized, as our doctor mm -hmm. in the film says. Yep. For treatment to be successful, however, as with most things, a voyeur must want to modify existing patterns of behavior. Right. Hmm. This initial step is difficult for most voyeurs to admit and then take. Uh, treatments for voyeurism typically include cognitive therapy, which uh, seeks to change the patient's behavior without analyzing how and why it shows up. Okay. That's based on the idea that fetishism is the result of conditioning and imprinting. So we're going to condition you to not do that. Right. There's behavioral therapy, which is the most common. Uh, voyeurs must learn to control the impulse and to watch non-consenting victims. Uh, really? psychoanalysis in which they try to spot the traumatic unconscious experience that caused the voyeuristic behavior in the first place, which for Mark would be kind of easy because he has it all documented on film. <laughs> <laughs> I've got hours of footage. Let me show you. And uh, medication, various forms of drugs that, and here's the thing though, because medication isn't going to just get rid of voyeur your voyeuristic tendencies. It's going yeah. to inhibit the production of sex steroids above all male testosterone and female estrogen. So by cutting off the level of sex steroids, sexual desire, and thus your impulse to be a voyeur is diminished. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, that's not going to be helpful. It's almost like a like a genital lobotomy is kind of what that sounds like to me. Yeah, like a neutering in a way, right? Like, okay, yes. well, I just won't feel anything sexual so that I don't have to worry about the deviant sexual. Exactly. And I, I mean, I find all that very interesting just because, I mean, psychology is interesting. But I guess I, mm-hmm. for me, I'd never thought of voyeurism. I mean, I knew it was like a paraphilia, but I never really like, thought about it in those terms because it's become so commonplace to just be like, oh, yeah, I'm more of a voyeur. Like I like to watch people. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about this film, and it, it became especially apparent when you were going through the critical reception of it, was how deeply disturbing it is for people to be put into the role of a voyeur against their will. And I think it's fascinating because it's so much more commonplace now. So in a way, this film feels not outdated, but it's it's almost like a kid's glove handling of it. But because of right. when it was released, obviously, it was a, a huge issue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So returning to the film, yeah, Mm -hmm. basically what Mark learns is that he could learn to treat his diagnosis. And so this is of interest to him. But we also don't really get a sense of like, does he plan to pursue that? Or is he just like, cool, okay, now I understand what ails me. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, it's unclear until, well, the end. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the police are watching all of this go down, but obviously they missed a lot of it. So when they go to ask Dr. Rosen, hey, what happened? He's like, oh, scoptophilia, blah, blah, blah. You're like, (laughs) hey, I guess he's not your patient, but maybe a little confidentiality. I know. That's an interesting thing to just talk to a random psychiatrist about. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, um,. Mark ends up getting sort of gently triggered when his hot cameraman friend ends up just randomly being like, hey, I've got this nudie picture. And Mark is like, ah, shit, that's what I got to do. Finish my movie. So he sets up a photo shoot with Millie that night. Yeah. So because he has set off some gentle alarm bells among the detectives, he is actually followed by a plainclothes detective. And Mm -hmm. I do love that shot of Mark watching Helen as she comes out of work and she doesn't see him. And then he doesn't realize that he's being watched by a detective in plainclothes further back. And you're like, who's watching? Who's watching? Yes, yes. (laughs) Taste of his own medicine, too, right? A little bit, although we very quickly realize that he does actually know that the police are on to him because when he gets to the newspaper shop and he goes up to Millie, she's yammering on, you know, she's Her being Millie. she's fantastic. <laughs> and he is taking pictures of the police detective who is reporting on him on the corner. And then he closes the drapes and then, well, we don't see it, but we learn later that Millie has been killed. But I was surprised we see her titties in this shot. <laughs> i mean uh, i just because it's 1960 <laughs> like i mean again th- th- this is a time when i mean i I'm, this is my last mention of psycho but like literally having marion crane and sam loomis guy that actor on mm-hmm. a bed together with her and her bra was deemed borderline pornographic in 1960 and then we have this movie with this woman's mm-hmm. tits out I mean, this is the difference between the U.S. and well, in this case, Europe. I would say, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sex is not as big of a deal. Murder, still a big deal. 
Yeah, murder, <laughs> murder is just a smidge, just a smidge, just a smidge, just a smidge. So Mark ends up locking up and basically giving a kind of head nod to the police just to be like, yeah, I see you there. And then he heads home. <laughs> and this is when Tony, meanwhile, has directed Helen to go upstairs. So she is kind of looking over files because, of course, she talked about doing some kind of camera project with Mark earlier. Who could? Care? Yeah. So she's looking through these things and she accidentally sets off the projector as we knew she would. The minute yeah. she goes into his apartment, we're like, shit, here we go. So th- th- this. Mm-hmm. So again, we don't see what she is watching. But no, and I fucking love it. I love the way that this is staged. Well, again, watching, I was like, well, shit, he needs to be filming this. <laughs> because mm. this is real fe- I mean obviously it's real fear when he's killing the women but like right. watching this actress d- like face act mm-hmm. as she watches this snuff film is yes so good yeah and the score is going bananas the moment she like she she breaks at one point and she like yells and like she has to hide behind the shelf from the mm-hmm. vision like from what she is seeing yeah, it's so good. And we can sense that if things are starting to close in on Mark, like things are coming to a head very clearly, because Chief Inspector Gray very quickly learns that Millie's body has been discovered. So now we know Mark is the killer. It's a matter of will they get to him before he kills Helen? That is the other thing, too. I do love the the, the, the little tidbit where it's like the bodies of the women, they all have the exact same expression on their face mm-hmm. and the body. Mm-hmm. So it's like just this, this look of pure terror is on every single of these victims' faces. Yeah, it's basically the ring. Yes! Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> Ask your terrible. mom which shower has the vibrating shower head. God. A <laughs> uh, little scary movie three joke there for you folks. Okay. I, mean, I, I hope they knew that. <laughs> I hope. But you know what? Just in case. You never Just know. This could be their very first episode. Oh, so Mark has come in and he sees what Helen is watching. We never do see which tape she's watching. It doesn't really matter because nah. we know. But he sees her and he can't look at her. Because if he sees her, then his scope tophilia will turn on it will activate so he has to have this whole conversation away from her and it is again just like oh my god this is amazing he says don't let me see you frightened because he knows exactly what that will do Mm -hmm. so this is where it's very obvious that he has been aware of his condition he just hasn't been able to stop it or he hasn't wanted to stop it but for helen he won't he will try not to yeah So this is when he begins playing tapes of his childhood abuse, and we get the confirmation that the entire house is wired for sound and video. It's really disturbing, especially because Helen is so perturbed, but she also very clearly feels affection for him. So she she keeps telling him, like, you have to tell me what you did to these women because not knowing will be worse. And you're just like, Helen get the fuck out of there before he kills you but i mean even that line though because when he's showing you the stuff he says you know some of what my dad did but not mm-hmm. all of it and like and then he's like so let me show you <laughs> yeah i got it all hours and hours and hours and hours of footage i mean it is, it, all we can do is hear young mark screaming like terrified mm-hmm. screams guttural yes. screams on this video with no idea what's happening to him and no. th- that i mean it's great oof, oof. Yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. so effective without having to do any of that work, because whatever we're imagining is way worse 
than anything yeah. that Powell could have actually shown us. And you're like, yes, this is how you do it. It's classy, but so fucking effective. Exactly. It's the same. It's the same with all the tapes. It's the same with the again, mm -hmm. the expression of the women's faces. Like it's better to yep. imagine what that looks like. Hundred percent. Yeah. So this is when Helen says, like, no, I need you. I need you to tell me. I need you to show me. So he sets up his tripod and mm. he positions it at her neck. And this is where we finally get the reveal that it's not just that he has killed them with this tripod leg. It is that they have been looking into a like convex mirror, mirror. of their own faces. And it distorts the face to such an extreme it really is horrifying and so insidious, right? Like this idea that, oh, it's not just that he needed to see the fear on their faces. They had to watch themselves get killed. Well, and it's something he learned from his father, right? Because the, the, the flickering light on their faces is something that we saw in the first tape of his child self. Mm -hmm. So he got this from his dad. So his dad not only was trying to scare him, but was yeah. also making him see his own fear in his reflection. Like, yeah, like decades of psychiatry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in that line is I made them see their own terror as the spike went in. And if death has a face, they saw that too. Bam, yeah. revealed the mirror. <laughs> oh, man. It is I, so good. Even when you know it's coming, it's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. When you understand the ramifications of what his father was doing to him, you're just like, this poor man, but also, Jesus, fuck. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's what makes him more sympathetic, right? Or more empathetic. Mm -hmm. is because like, we do spend so much time being told or being inferred like what his dad was doing to him so we understand mm -hmm. why mark is this way even though we can condemn every single one of his actions oh absolutely yeah like you you make the direct line like oh your dad did this exact thing to you the only thing your dad didn't do was kill you but we can directly see the relationship between what happened to you and what you're doing to these women now like it's your yeah. dad's fault 100 uh, percent except of course it's also mark's fault because he knows what he's doing and he's not well, I was to say, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> when, when does it stop and when does it become yeah. his responsibility to take care of right exactly and that's what makes the film fascinating right is how much do we blame mark for what he is ultimately still responsible for doing yeah oh god so the police begin to arrive we've got the sirens blaring he mark fucking he's such a showboat he actually <laughs> lifts the blind so that he can be like i just gotta get this b-roll one final bit make the movie perfect <laughs> so he films them for a moment and then he confirms he's actually not going to hurt helen he's gonna follow through on his promise not to film her Instead, he sets up the camera for himself, so he is choosing to die by suicide. The thing that breaks my heart is when he admits that he's afraid, because it oh. feels so childlike to me. But he not only says, I'm afraid, he says, and I'm glad I'm afraid, because Aww. he's ideally going to see, like, like the, the, yeah. his big O is about to happen. Yeah, he's finally going to fulfill his promise. He's he's finding a way out of his trauma, but also he will finally get a release in multiple senses of the word. But it's interesting, right? Because if the whole part of being a voyeur is it's like you oh you're you're spying on peeping on unsuspecting parties. So mm -hmm. in theory, this shouldn't work for him because he right. is suspecting of his own like he's watching himself. But maybe that's the key, right? Like, oh, it's the voyeur turning on the voyeur and I become my own subject. And therefore this is the masterpiece I've been waiting for. Well, weirdly enough, a lot of people, not a lot, 
some people have said this whole movie isn't actually an accurate reflection of Scopophilia because, you know, all of these women know that he's watching them. Like, it is part mm. of, I think, one of the reasons why people often say, oh, there's a really uncomfortable sexual tinge to all of these women being murdered by this man who is taking sexual pleasure in the murders. And right. my reading is always he's not taking pleasure in the murder of women. He's taking pleasure in the murders that are being filmed. Yeah. But you could argue, oh, it's not even scopophilia because the women know that they're being watched. Like, there is no anonymity or uh, secretness to this voyeurism. Well, and we, I mean, again, like, we can link this back to Mother from a few weeks ago with, like, oh, the creator, the auteur, like, mm -hmm. I am driven mad by their own art like yep. this is that is this right like he is the ultimate he's trying to make a movie that will mm -hmm. satisfy his urges his sexual urges and he can get off to it for later <laughs> i just want to make a movie i just want to make art he's synchronized the videos of all of his victims and we're, to where they scream and die at the same time mm -hmm. oh Ooh. yeah i mean let's let's also talk about your ocd mark you've got oh, some shoes <laughs> that's your ticking clock right there there we go. So he ends up following through on this big O and he dies by suicide. And this is so horrific that Helen passes out. He okay, he he positions himself and Helen stupidly, like almost like runs into him, pushing him on too. the grave. <laughs> girl, if you're trying to stop him from doing this, maybe don't rush at him when he's positioned the thing at his neck. I was like, you're really lucky he was holding onto that tripod. But, um, right? but yeah, um, then we get that great splash of blood and yeah i mean the movie just ends right like it we get the really cops does. come in they're like oh he's dead she's alive they gotta pick her mm -hmm. up she's traumatized for life oh, and yeah. then yeah we end on what the spinning reels of, of his of his camera yeah and i mean the final kicker just in case you were not feeling too too bad about mark's upbringing uh we get to hear his father admonish him for being frightened one last time and then we yes. hear child mark is the last line of dialogue as he asks if his father will hold his hand and there's no answer and we just fade to black and the movie's over you're like fuck kick me feel in good the movie. balls <laughs> that's a feel good movie if i ever saw one <laughs> But here's the thing. This movie is a goddamn delight. Like, I enjoyed watching this movie so much. When I paused to check the time, I may have messaged you and been like, I am loving this movie. No, you, <laughs> you, you mentioned something to me and I was like, it's so good, right? And you were like, no, it's great. <laughs> yeah, this is a four and a half out of five movie for me. It's yeah. nearly perfect. It is awesome I mean, the fact that it, i mean this is 1960 like really aids to it because you're just like i'm just surprised that, that mm -hmm. it, it feels like such a thoughtful film yes. it's something that could have been very exploitative and gross yes yeah and we know that the brits were making their own versions of kind of video nasty so they would in the future like that it's not as though they're all prim and proper i made that joke earlier but the truth is is they were making their fair share of splashy films this film I don't know. Maybe it's its interest in psychology that makes it feel a little bit more mature or a little bit more adult in that way. But it has that air of classiness to it. I think it's what Powell brings to the production, right? Like it's staged and shot and constructed so fucking well. My big complaint is just I actually want more of these women because I find them all really fascinating and the film just isn't as interested in that it's really wanting to talk about mark and mark psychology well that's what you get with psycho then you get the women yeah. in psycho this is true yeah i mean honestly what a fantastic double bill those two would be 
Yeah, and actually, it, it, uh, interestingly enough, too, I didn't mention this with Scorsese stuff because I thought it was just kind of like, eh, like whatever. But this film was used, uh, it was Eastman color, which was mm. like a transitional thing after Technicolor, but it made everything a lot more vibrant. And Pops. Scorsese attributes a lot of the the negative reaction to it on top of just the, the everything we already discussed. But seeing a movie that dealt with such... Oh, darkness, but it's so bright. But it's so bright, lurid. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just vibrant, and it just like it really strikes you. And again, maybe not for us because we we've seen film shot like in vibrant mm-hmm. colors for a long, long time. But right, for right. people in 1960, when they're like, "Oh shit!" Like the films can look like this, yeah. And then you're watching this thing about this like you know murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, no, I, I love this movie. If, if, if you made it to the end of this episode and you haven't watched it, I, I hope that we have convinced you to seek it out. It is streaming mm-hmm. in places like go find it. It is a fantastic film. Yeah. And as you said, it's delightful, which is a seems like a weird word to use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it feels like the kind of film where you think this is from 1960. It shouldn't be able to hold my attention the way it does. Like it mm-hmm. should feel old. And instead it feels classic. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, Any other thoughts on Peeping Tom, Joe? Yeah, I feel like we've said our piece. It's the benefit of having just you and I on an episode. We get to talk a lot. Oh, my God. (laughs) We haven't done one of these since Housebound, so... Okay, well, before we announce what we're covering next week, um, everyone, just some housekeeping to get out of the way. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And, of course, go check out our YouTube channel for a bunch of fun videos. Mm-hmm. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Uh, we're nearing the end of March, but we're not quite there yet. So uh, if you go subscribe today, you will get our uh, episodes on Winter Thriller No Exit, Sebastian Stan starring Fresh, Ty West directed and written X, and a fun discussion on our favorite horror films where the villain wins. Uh, oh, also, our audio commentary on the month is on Blade 2 for its 20th anniversary anniversary um but you know stay tuned uh for all that (laughs) Mm. actually while you're talking about the patreon another good double bill because you alerted me to this before we started recording Mm -hmm. uh edgar wright's last night in soho which we covered on the patreon Mm. at the end of last year very directly indebted to this film yes very much so and deals with similar ish issues but just in very different ways um mm-hmm. one's very much style over substance some might say <laughs> yes and it's not peeping time. it's not peeping time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh joe 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 mm-hmm. what are we talking about next week uh well it's gonna be a very hard transition because we're going from classy to trashy choice <laughs> Uh, we're not quite done with the 2010s, so we're going to jump back to 2010 specifically so that we can talk about Alexander Aja's Piranha 3D. Late spring break present for all of you, and I hope you're excited. <laughs> oh my god, CGI carnage candy. What a gem this fucked up little movie is. So many tatas, epic tatas. Yeah, you wanted the boobs. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> But until next week, we can cross out Peeping Tom. Indeed, and cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.